Well, the passage has just been read, but I want to suggest that um, we read it again. That will bear more fruit than anything I can and will say. And then I want to set the context of the passage and address it under three headings, which you will find on page four, who is Jesus? How may I know him? And how should I respond? Jesus begins by doing something that you might expect John the Baptist to do. And after all, it was John the Baptist who preceded this section and whom Jesus defended. So here Jesus begins to denounce the cities in a rather John the Baptist way. Then he began to denounce the cities in which the majority of his wonders were done because they had not repented. He said, woe to you Chorazin, woe to you Bethsaida, for if in Tyre and Sidon the wonders that took place among you had occurred, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I tell you, Tyre and Sidon will fare better than you on the day of judgment. And you, Capernaum, you won't be exalted to heaven, will you now? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if in Sodom the deeds that were done in you had been done, it would have remained until this day. Nevertheless, I tell you that Sodom will fare better on the day of judgment than you. Then follows in verses 25 and 26, uh, a, a sort of an inside behind the scenes explanation as to why these Galilean cities did not repent. Verse 25, we continue. At that time, Jesus responded to this unbelief by saying, I acknowledge you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for you hid these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, such was a great pleasure from your perspective. And then Jesus goes on to elaborate upon his relationship with the Father in words that are truly astounding. Everything has been handed over to me, says Jesus, by my Father. And no one fully perceives the Son except the Father. And neither does anyone fully perceive the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wishes to reveal him. And then come words that have been a great source of comfort to many of us and upon which we shall focus uh, to a considerable extent in the meditation to follow. Then Jesus turns and he says to the crowd, come to me, not come after me. This is the only place in the New Testament where someone says, come to me, come towards me, everyone who is exhausted and hearing and bearing heavy burdens, and I shall grant you relief. Raise my yoke upon you and be mentored by me, for I am meek and humble in heart, and you shall find repose for your souls, for my yoke is comfortable and my load is light. All right, now to the uh, outline on page uh, three. And um, I want to turn to the context and I want to read um, what I have in footnote 28, which comes from my favorite commentator, Frederick Dale Bruner. Um, he has a magisterial commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. And he reminds us of where we've been and where we're going in words that I could not improve on. So he says the following, Having learned of Jesus' coming in the Christmas stories, 
We heard his word in the Sermon on the Mount, seen his works in the 10 miracles, chapters 8 and 9. I'm at the bottom of page 4 in the footnote. And appropriated his mission in the Sermon on Mission. We are now ready to investigate the mystery of his person in these next two chapters, that is chapter 11, which we began to consider um, last week, and chapter 12, which will take us into the next few weeks, which I shall call the six portraits. Who is this one who comes, teaches, acts, and sends in these ways? The next two chapters give an answer. Brunner continues, it seems to me that the organizing principle of these two mixed genre chapters is discernible in the question that introduces them. Are you the one who is coming, or should we be waiting for someone else? Who are you, Jesus, is the question that echoes down the corridors of Matthew 11 and 12. And so last week, following the outline of Brunner, we learned about the promised Messiah. That he was a different sort of Messiah than John the Baptist and others expected, but the Messiah nonetheless, and more than the Messiah, the divine Messiah, someone who takes up and embodies all kinds of different Old Testament figures and who kind of brims over in fulfillment of the Old Testament as God the promised Messiah. And then this week, here we are, we come to 1120 to 24, which Bruner has titled Jesus is the coming judge. And 11.25 to 30, which, Jesus, which Bruner has called Jesus the present Savior. And then there's a list of the other three Jesus portraits that I will use in the weeks to come. Bruner notes, and I finished on the last paragraph, of a balance that these portraits give us between um, kind of um, avoiding a, a Santa Claus understanding of Jesus to include one that is, involves judgment as well. He says, chapters 11 and 12 together give us the healthy, wholesome, the healthy wholeness of Jesus in such a way that the church is guarded from interpreting Israel's Messiah one-sidedly. As Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and 10 Miracles gave us a full Jesus who both taught spiritually and touched physically, so now the Christ of Matthew 11 and 12 together give us the one great Christ who both who brings both salvation, good news, and judgment. Here he refers to the words that we began the passage with, where Jesus announces his uh, condemnation of the cities around Galilee. Okay. Now I want to come and uh, tackle our outline on page four. Um, but before I come to who is Jesus, uh, I simply, I, I want to I begin with a bit of a sidebar that starts more where we are. I don't know if it's just my impression of Vancouver or uh, it's real, but I have a, a, the sense that people from Vancouver are somehow, I don't know, they're trendy or more sophisticated. Uh, the first time I ever heard of a life coach or a personal trainer was uh, when a friend from Vancouver um, had a life coach and a personal trainer, someone that they paid to come and just give attention to them and to teach them how to exercise their life and how to live. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've been bumbling through my whole life without a personal trainer or a life coach that comes to my door. Parents nowadays love to have their kids go to lessons. Uh, I met uh, an Iranian-Canadian family this week 
whose son was involved in violin lessons followed by music tutors and all kinds of other things. Tutelage seemed to be crucial. Here in this passage, towards the end, Jesus announces that he is willing to be our tutor. And he wants to tutor us in primarily how to keep God's laws, how to fulfill those two commandments that we began our, liturg our um, litany with, or our liturgy with, to love God with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. But Jesus is here offering to be our tutor. So I want you to pretend this morning or this afternoon that you are looking for a life tutor. And I want you to consider Jesus. And let's look at it under three headings. Well, be nice to know who this person is who offers tutelage. Who is Jesus? And for that, I want us to skip over the first part, not that we're going to miss it, but I want to come to the point of verse 27. And it's at the top of page two in my notes. Jesus, the Son who knows God the Father and who reveals him to us. Jesus says, everything has been handed over to me by my Father. Everything has been handed over to me by my Father. No one fully perceives the Son except the Father. Okay, well, that's nice. It's nice that uh, the Father understands the Son. Um, but Jesus has already made the audacious claim that everything has been handed over to him by his Father. And now he goes on to say, neither does anyone fully perceive the Father except the Son. Jesus is saying, I have a monopoly on understanding God. And then he includes us in it, and he says, and anyone to whom the Son wishes to reveal him, that is God. My friends, who is Jesus? Jesus is the revelation of God. Uh, in our country of Canada, of course, we have a governor general, and the governor general represents the queen. Well, you might think that Jesus is kind of like the governor general. Jesus is saying far more than that. Uh, it would be almost as though Jesus were the governor general of God the King, while at the same time claiming to be the identical twin of God the Father. Jesus is saying there's this relationship between him and the Father. There's a communion so that the Father has given all things to him, that the Father knows him fully. There's a, this special word for know in Greek that has a little prefix on it. It means know entirely or to recognize fully. No one fully perceives the Son except the Father. And then comes the claim of our tutor, neither does anyone fully perceive the Father, that is God, except the Son. My friends, Jesus and God, if they were headhunters, they would have discovered each other. Each is the other's go-to person. To know Jesus is to know God. To hear from Jesus is to hear from God. To see Jesus act is to learn about the behavior of God. And so Jesus here declares that he has ultimate authority and that he is the way in to the Father. A, careful, a more careful read would allow us to understand that Jesus is not only the revelation of God, that he is the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. 
This comes primarily in verse 28 by way of indirect reference. You see, when Jesus says to me, when Jesus says in verses 28 to 30, come to me, everyone who is exhausted and bearing heavy burdens, raise my yoke upon me, upon you and be mentored by me. He's actually quoting from another Jesus. Um, he's quoting from someone called Jesus Ben Sirah, who wrote a Jewish religious book. And in that Jewish religious book, Jesus Ben Sirah, speaking as divine wisdom, says, come to me. In other words, as Jesus says, come to me, so people were used to hearing wisdom say, come to me. And so Jesus is claiming to be the wisdom of God incarnate. This reminds us of what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. My friends, who is this Jesus who wants to be the tutor, the life coach of your life? He is the revelation of God. He is God's man and God himself. He is all of God's wisdom embodied in a person. Here Matthew is saying effectually what John is uh, saying ontologically in his gospel. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Well, that sounds like a pretty good tutor to have as a life coach, don't you think? It'd be good to get your kids to know how this uh, person uh, behaves. Maybe come and give some extra lessons in life. Well, how much does he cost? How do we get to know him? Well, here comes the surprise. We like to think of ourselves as wise, intelligent, discerning people. I'm pretty good at recognizing a good thing when I see it, if I do say so myself. Jesus puts all of that to kibosh. When he says where he does, at that time, verse 25, Jesus responded to the unbelief by saying, I acknowledge you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for you, God, hid these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. You see, the people of Galilee had uh, seen Jesus. They had watched him perform miracles, but somehow they missed the point. And the point was that Jesus is bringing the kingdom, that Jesus is the beginning of that utopian period where people no longer suffer from illness. Uh, the dead are raised to life again. And instead of seeing Jesus for beginning the kingdom in the way that they should have and repenting, they sort of thought, wow, well, that's, that's pretty good. Let's, 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 let's bring Uncle Harry, who's got a, you know, who's got a withered hand, and let's, let's bring Uncle Harry to, the, to, this, to this healer. They missed something, and here Jesus tells us that the way to know the tutor is up to God. And God has a certain preference for people who don't think too much of themselves. We've seen time again in the Gospel of Matthew and time again in the Old Testament where God resists the wise and he gives grace to the humble, where Jesus blesses the poor, he loves to lift up the poor and to bring down the rich. Not because he hates the rich, 
But because with riches and with knowledge and with arrogance comes a wall between you and God that says, I don't need you. I'm sophisticated in enough. I'm sophisticated in and of myself. Thank you. So there's something important to know if you want to know God. You can't unless God chooses or so it would seem. So it's up to God, and that's why Jesus says, the Galileans didn't repent. Father, I acknowledge you that you resist the intelligent Jewish people and the Pharisees and the scribes who are observing this, and you have given insight into the kingdom to uh, fishermen with a junior high at best education, to uh, this poor person, to that uh, lame person, people who recognize that they're needy and who don't have a whole lot of pretension. We care a great deal about what other people think of us. We love to parade our credentials around. Don't we love it when other people think that we are learned or godly or uh, a model Christian? And we can just kind of raise our chin up a little bit and say, yep, I'm doing pretty well. The minute we do that, we find ourselves butting against God who really wishes that we would just get honest, get on our knees and recognize that we are needy people because he's all about help. Jesus said in that one-liner, I came to heal those who recognized their need of a physician. If you think you're healthy, you don't need the doctor, so you think. So how may I know this life coach? Well, verses 25 and 26 say it's up to God. But verse 26, uh, but verse 27 has gone on to say as well that um, anyone to whom the Son wishes to reveal God. So here again, we get this thing, and, and Matthew is all but saying out loud, Jesus is God. John comes right out and says it. But Matthew whispers it in just about uh, every second verse of this. Jesus is God. Uh, so um, it's anyone to whom the Son wishes to reveal the Father. But lest we think that um, it's all about predestination, and unless you want to sign up as a five-point Calvinist, I want to remind you in verse 28 that Jesus makes it sound like an offer to us as well. He says to the crowd, come to me, everyone who's exhausted and bearing heavy burdens, and I shall grant you relief. You see, there's a balance between the sovereign will of God, which is um, completely determinative, and the free will of ourselves. And we don't know how to bring those two things together. So the best thing to do is with humility to affirm them both and say, God, I don't get it. You teach both in Scripture, and I'm going to affirm both. So there's an element of God's sovereignty here, but it doesn't triumph the idea of uh, human responsibility. Look at... Uh, the, the comment on God's sovereignty on page four, where under verses 25 to 27. Page four, uh, in the middle, God's sovereignty. A New Testament commentator from Fuller Seminary has said, nothing is ever out of the control of God, who is Lord of heaven and earth. 
Yet God's sovereignty must not be taken to cancel out the free will and responsibility of those to whom the gospel goes. At bottom, it is a question of receptivity. And here he invokes the Beatitudes. If you're poor in spirit, you have an open heart to me. If you mourn, I will come and bring you comfort. So the question is, are our hearts open to God? And let's not get hung up on divine sovereignty and predestination, because that's something that we'll never plumb the depths of. Our side is clear. We have an invitation to respond. And if we do so with a sense of openness and need, we are told that he will answer. Come to me, everyone who's exhausted and bearing heavy burdens, and I shall grant you relief. So who is Jesus, the revelation of God and the wisdom of God? How may I know him? Well, it's up to God, and it's up to, it's up to the Son, to whom the Father has given his will over to the Son, and it seems as well up to us. And it helps to have a bit of humility and not to think of yourself too highly. Well, if this is the kind of tutor that you think you'd like to have as a life coach, how should you respond? How should I respond? Well, this takes us to verses 20 to 24, doesn't it? We should respond the way that Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum didn't. They didn't recognize that when God reveals himself, there comes with it a responsibility to respond. And the proper response is one of repentance. I've lost track of how many Superman movies there, or how many Spider-Man movies there are, but I think it was the second Spider-Man movie, maybe the first, where um, the wise uh, paternal figure says, with great power comes great responsibility. I got it right? And said to this young Spider-Man, you have been given great power, and with great power comes great responsibility. Well, with the revelation of the power of God shown in Jesus Christ comes great responsibility on our part. Having seen God shown to us in the person of Jesus Christ, we have the responsibility to turn our lives around. It's not just, oh, what an interesting spectacle, thank you. It's like going to Niagara Falls. You look at it and say, wow, get back in the car and drive home and live like you always have. No, when you see God working in the person of Jesus Christ, when the Holy Spirit comes and speaks to you personally, he's knocking at the door and expecting you to open and answer with a gracious bow and an invitation to let him in. With great power comes great responsibility. With great revelation comes great responsibility to repent. Well, the other thing to do is what the Jews of the time didn't do, and that was to recognize that Jesus was the one who was bringing God's heavenly kingdom. That's the message of the Gospel of Matthew. Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. John the Baptist said it. Jesus said it in exactly the same words. And... Uh, Surprisingly or not, they haven't gotten it so far, which is one of the reasons why Matthew is writing his gospel, so that we will get it. 
Jesus has inaugurated a new kingdom, and he invites us to be members of that new kingdom. And last week, do you remember we found that even the least of us who comes on the now side of that kingdom is greater than even the greatest in that previous stage of the kingdom, that brought in by John the Baptist. Friends, we're invited to a heavenly party where God wins and everything will be well. So how should we respond? Repent, recognize Jesus as bringer of God's heavenly kingdom. We're following the outline at the top of page four. And then accept his tutelage in Torah keeping. Let me go to the fourth one first because it, it, it comes up. And here I'm talking about verses 28 to 30. Accept his offer of relief. Jesus says, come to me, everyone who is exhausted and bearing heavy burdens, and I shall grant you relief. Friends, help is on the way. Um, we live in a life that's as stressful as any other generation, I suppose. It's stressful in different ways. We're burdened down with all kinds of uh, responsibilities. We feel like we're carrying too much of a load at home, at work. Jesus can bring relief to that and does. But here he's speaking primarily of what Matthew and Jesus have been talking about all through the gospel so far. And that is how you live a good life, how you please God and how you live with other people. He's getting back to the point about the fact that our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Let me read verses 28 and 29 again, and then I want to uh, show you a passage from elsewhere in Matthew. Come to me, everyone who's exhausted and bearing heavy burdens, and I shall grant you relief. Raise my yoke upon you and be mentored by me, for I am meek and humble in heart, and you shall find repose for your souls. Page five, parallel passages. The first item under parallel passages. What is Jesus talking about here when he's talking about bearing a heavy load and about being humble? He's talking about not being a law keeper like the Pharisees are. Matthew 23, verse 1, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens on you. These are the same two words that occur here in Matthew 11. Heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So as much as it's true that Jesus relieves all kinds of burdens in our life, the burden of guilt, the burden of feeling as though there's no way out of this endless cycle of being trapped in your own self and in your own habits. Here Jesus is talking about bearing the burdens that the Jews were wanting to put on people by making them follow all kinds of rules. Um, our, our Jewish friends are friends, but they, they differ on this point. And the Pharisees were the uh, progenitors of contemporary Judaism. And on Shabbat, in Jewish life today, an observant Jew uh, follows many laws that are not in the Bible, but they follow them because they think that if they build a hedge, a big fence around the real laws, that they won't come anywhere close to the real laws. So it's kind of a good strategy in a way. 
you know, um, if I if if God tells me not to get within two feet of that music stand, I'll say, okay, well, I'm going to draw a border around five feet, and that way I'm going to avoid it. But Jesus is here saying the five foot border is a burden, and the Pharisees are weighing you down with all kinds of burdens. And so, um, in 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 uh, in Israel today, on um, you have a a Sabbath elevator that will take you that stops at every floor because you're not allowed to push the elevator button to your floor on the Sabbath. That's work. No pushing the elevator button. Well, to you and me, and I argue to Jesus, that kind of misses the point as well as intentioned as it is. And here Jesus is telling us that his yoke is one that is comfortable. That's how I've translated um, um, Maybe I, maybe, I missed, maybe I missed out the verse in my own translation. I don't know. Oh, no, in verse 30, for my yoke is comfortable and my load is light. Bad news and, uh, bad news and good news. The bad news is that when Jesus says, I'm going to grant you relief, my yoke is comfortable and my load is light, is not uh, take a vacation, don't worry about obeying God, <clears throat> um, just drink pina coladas on the beach from now until um, I come. No, in fact, our, our burden is heavier in some ways than that of the Pharisees. Jesus didn't let us off the hook, but he focused on the essentials and gave us ways in which the law has been summarized, like we saw at the beginning of our liturgy. But more than this, when Jesus in verse 29 says, my yoke, raise my yoke upon you, there's a good chance that he's talking about one of those double yokes. You know, if you've got, if you've got two oxen pulling a cart, uh, there's a yoke that goes around the shoulders of one, and then right beside the one is the yoke that goes around the shoulder of the other. And many people feel as though Jesus is telling us here that he is going to bear the yoke with us, and that's part of what makes it comfortable. Raise my yoke upon you, and be mentored by me. Be mentored by me. I wonder what he means here by be mentored by me. Well, he tells us. For I am meek and humble in heart. You see, if you go back to Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus was criticizing the law keeping of the scribes and the Pharisees, he said, they love to do their deeds to be seen by others. They make phylacteries broad and fringes long. They love places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. They love being greeted and called rabbi by others. You see, that's the opposite of meek and humble in heart. It's pretentious and grabbing for names and uh, for, uh, for titles and that kind of thing. Jesus is saying part of what it means to be tutored by me in keeping the law is go deep to the heart matters, stay with what's important, and adopt a humble servant-like attitude rather than um, thinking you're a hotshot and have a monopoly on righteousness. And you will find repose for your souls. Another five minutes, okay? I'm not asking it's a rhetorical question. You see, the relief isn't from work. It's from the tediousness of law-keeping. And in the context, it's also true that part of Jesus' message has to do with the future. That in the end, it's going to work out all right, so that your, your efforts prove to accomplish the end for which they're desired. 
But I want to say as well that part of the relief just comes by way of Jesus himself. Think of it. You've got the same job, exactly the same duties, but in one job you work for a boss who's a schmuck, and in the other job you work for a boss who's a great boss. Are your burdens lighter under one boss than the other? Yeah, kind of. Somehow it's just worth it when you know that the boss is a wonderful person. Well, my friends, Jesus is a wonderful person. This week, the staff and the council read a, a chapter of a book that had this anecdote in it. And the comparison is from The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which Aslan is like God or Jesus. And I want to suggest that working for this kind of boss, Jesus, is a little bit like hearing about Aslan when the children first hear about it. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the beaver signals to children to stand around them as close as they possibly could. Beaver said in a low whisper, they say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. Lewis writes, and now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says that something happened which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as though it had some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one that turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get back into that dream. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its side, in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter suddenly felt brave and adventuresome. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. My friends, the tutor himself makes the burden light and makes the yoke comfortable because of who he is. We know that song, Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. All my life was wrecked by sin and strife. Discord filled, discord filled my heart with pain. Jesus swept across the broken strings, stirred the slumbering chords again. Though sometimes he leads through waters deep, trials fall across the way. Though sometimes the path seems rough and steep, see his footprints all the way. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. My friends, whatever you do, by God's grace and in humility, sign that tutor up as your personal coach. Amen.